This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Second Harvest of Central Florida CEO Dave Krepko says the pandemic had a profound impact on the way the food bank operates. For a start, the amount of food going out has nearly doubled. Krepko is stepping down from the job at the end of the year. I spoke to him back in June about the safety net for people hardest hit by the pandemic and what's next for Second Harvest and the non-profit world. Well, Dave Krepko, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let me ask you a big picture question. How has the pandemic affected what you do at Second Harvest? The pandemic has affected everything we do at Second Harvest, Uh, you know, starting with just uh, an incredible increase in demand for emergency food. And, you know, the, you know, in a year, we'll distribute a lot of food. You know, pre-COVID, we distributed enough for about 60 million meals in Central Florida, we're talking about. And that's a lot. And we're on track. Uh, this past calendar year to distribute enough for 100 million meals. Uh, so, you know, that has major impact on our operations and our truck drivers and the amount of trucks we have, the number of volunteers, um, you know, it's just uh, phenomenal. And to, uh, to try to find that additional food, you know, in the first place. So, and that, that puts a strain on, you know, every, every part of the organization, you know, it puts a strain on, uh, you know, fundraising as well. You know, you can, you can have the greatest mission in the world, but if you don't have the financial resources, you're not going to go far. Fortunately, we have seen during this pandemic a real positive impact. You know, the Central Florida community is incredibly generous. And due to them, we've been able to respond at such a high level. The other things that have impacted us um, just talking to so many more people who have had to ask for food support that never had to before. We figure about 40% of, of the folks that we distributed food to in this past year never had to ask before. And that is a very different phenomenon. As we know, people lost jobs through no fault of their own. You know, all of a sudden, those jobs were gone. And then we're finding this part of the population that pre-pandemic was kind of on the fence, you know, trying to do the balancing act, you know, economically in life. And when the pandemic hit, they just fell over the other side of the fence. So it just increased the numbers substantially. And thinking about where we are now, economically, we're kind of turning the corner a little bit, like jobs are coming back online. Uh, There's actually a bit of a hiring boom at the moment, right? Like um, companies are in some cases, struggling to fill positions. Does that mean, as far as you're concerned, that that demand for the services that you provide is going to go down? Or do you see this recession and the subsequent, you know, the attendant food need having a pretty long tail? Let's hope the demand goes down and may the economy continue to improve and may employment be more full for, for everyone. We believe there will be a long tail after the recession we saw a long tail and the impact of COVID, you know, from our organization point of view was even greater from COVID. So we believe there's going to be a, a, a long, long tail. During COVID, people blew through a lot of their savings if they had any, right? And even if they're able to get employed again, okay, it's going to take a while for them to become whole again. That could take years depending on what what situation you're in or what kind of job you're able to find. And the other thing is, pre-COVID, we have to remember that we had a very tenuous situation 
for low-income folks that if you have a low-paying job, uh, you, you have this unaffordable housing crisis that has not gone away during COVID. And if anything, it's become worse. You know, we're, it looks like we're the cost of real estate now and rentals is increasing substantially. And it, it seems like this bubble is growing bigger and bigger. So people might be getting back to work, but they're finding themselves without savings. Maybe they lost a car, you know, it was repossessed or whatever because they couldn't meet payments. But they've delayed medical care and that health issues have caught up with them. So uh, with the economy getting better, it's not an automatic, hey, everything's going to be there. It's going to be lower demand. The other interesting dynamic is that due to the generosity of the food industry and the community, we've been able to source and purchase much more food than usual during this pandemic, substantially. And it showed us what it gave us an idea of the, the real size of the demand in this market, you know. And after COVID does pass, we believe we're going to be looking at a, a, a new normal, so to speak, in terms of the number of people in need. You know, there are public benefits like SNAP, which are previously called food stamps. And there's this thing called the benefit cliff that exists. And as much as people want to get back to work, that the way that SNAP and some of these federally funded programs, social service programs are designed, is that if somebody were to get a 50 cent per hour increase in their hourly wage, right, that that would put them at a level where they would lose SNAP benefits or child care support. So for this marginal increase, you know, compensation, they face this corresponding dramatic decrease. And, you know, one of those things, and I mentioned it briefly, is just childcare is so expensive uh, that the least expensive, in most of the counties in Florida, the least expensive daycare costs can be more costly than the least expensive rent, hmm. you know, to put things in context. So uh, during this pandemic, we we really found out, you know, a, a clear picture of what the true need is in this community. We, we as an organization, we're not meeting 100% of the needs, uh, food needs of the community to begin with, you know. So thinking about some of those other things that they're not directly connected to the services that you provide, but it's all part of this holistic picture, right? Like um, the need for food, the cost of childcare, you know, transportation, all of those things are part of this ecosystem. And, and to your point, people who are really treading a fine line, trying to make everything balance up beforehand, a tiny little change or a big change in the case of COVID and the pandemic is, is really going to tip some people over the edge. But you know, when you think about childcare and the high cost of that, and then you hear people say, look, the simplest solution to get people back to work is to remove that extra benefit because that is just going to, you know, people are just kind of sitting at home because it's easier for them to do that. What do you think when you hear something like that? Like, does that kind of tally with what you're hearing about uh, this dynamic between, you know, what it costs to, to, to live in Central Florida or, or in the United States and, and what you can make in some of these jobs where the wages may not be so high? 
I believe that uh, by cutting off these additional unemployment benefits, it's not going to solve the problem in total. It's too simplified. It's a it's a very broad brush kind of paint that whole population, you know, the same. And when you start looking at the different types of individuals and the different types of jobs that that exist, um, you know, it, it it doesn't compute. We find that the hundreds of thousands of people that that receive food through us, they want to work if they can, right? Uh, and let's remember that these people have, so many of them have families. So there's there's kids in the families that um, are in circumstances beyond their control, right? They didn't choose what family or what zip code they were going to grow up in. And, um, you know, they, they can become and often become casualties of of some of this policy that is set without really thinking it through. You know, when, when policy like that is formed, we just got to be really careful about, you know, that we don't throw everybody into the same category. And there's a, and, and behind that can be, and often is, incredible stereotypes that are held about the unemployed. And uh, I would challenge any lawmaker to spend a day with us and and sit down and talk with some of these folks and really hear what their situations are. Now, you're stepping away from Second Harvest at the end of this year. Was that a decision that you'd already made before the pandemic, or was this kind of a moment of reflection for you in the middle of that? <laughs> yeah, COVID broke my back, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's been it's been a time for people to kind of reconsider what they're doing. A, a lot of folks, right? Yeah, for sure. Actually, I... I I had come to terms with the decision prior to COVID hitting. I just didn't go, you know, public with it. But it's it's kind of like being on the Titanic and it's going down and you're the captain, right? We weren't going down, but it, there's just no way you can walk away. But I was thinking longer term. It, it was kind of a coincidental thing. But, um, you know, in retrospect, now that I, that I look at it, it's like, well, I guess it's a really good time for me to step step away and retire, you know, and, and at the end of the year. Um, and I and I feel really good about it because um, we, we have such a strong team here and strong board of directors and support of the community. We have a, a wonderful future plan in place on, you know, continuing what we do plus, you know, plus some additional, you know, directions that, you know, we want to add. Uh, we have great momentum, and uh, I want to move from a human doing to a human being you know, in my life. I'm struck by what you said before about the growing need for the kind of service that Second Harvest and that other nonprofits like yours provide. How do you feel about the world and what you're handing over to the next generation of, of nonprofit leaders? Like, are we doing a good job collectively of filling that gap and feeding the need? Or do we? is this like a moment where we, we really need to be rethinking some of these big societal questions? I am very hopeful, actually, despite a lot of negative stuff going on around us, you know. But I am hopeful from a nonprofit point of view. When I see the Gen Xers and the millennials coming in, I am just so impressed. They are so smart. They're tech savvy. They have incredible passion and idealism. 
you know, all those qualities, you, you can't buy those qualities, you know. I believe for Central Florida, and it was pre-pandemic, it, it started to surface that I really sense that this community is really stepping up in collaboration and a lot more people talking to each other. There's more conversation around the systemic approach or this more holistic look of, of the people that require help. And all of us, whatever social service we're providing, it's basically dealing with the same population. So why should we work with them one-off, so to speak? You know, how can we collaborate more? And that's part of our direction as an organization. I, I really believe that people are working smarter because we're, we're learning a, along the way here, you know, through incredible experiences like, like COVID. Disasters are something that will really provide an opportunity to reveal what you're really all about. Uh, so I'm hopeful, you know, I think we're, we're going to be heading in a good direction. There's, there's a lot to figure out yet, let me tell you. Well, Dave Kripko is the CEO of Second Harvest. Dave, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. You are so welcome. That interview first aired last June. Still to come on Intersection, what defines Orlando for you? Is it the Swans and Lake Eola, Disney World, the I-4 Eyesore, the Orlando Magic? We'll talk with a panel of writers about how they see Central Florida and their role in reflecting and sometimes creating the identity of the city of Orlando. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Orlando landmarks like the spires of Cinderella's Castle, the I-4 Eyesore, the Edenville Archway or Lake Eola form the backdrop to Central Florida writing from YA authors to screenwriters. Back in January 2020, we invited a group of writers to stop by the studio to talk about writing about Orlando. Joining the conversation were novelist Nathan Hollick, author of Bright Light's Medium-Sized City, Jason Gregory, author and screenwriter who wrote a pilot for a TV series, Waking Up White, which was filmed in Eatonville, Jenny Torres Sanchez, a YA novelist whose books include Because of the Sun, Death, Dickinson and the Demented Life of Frenchie Garcia and The Downside of Being Charlie, and YA novelist Lauren Gibaldi, whose books include The Night We Said Yes, Autofocus and This Tiny Perfect World. Nathan Hollick began by explaining why he set his novel in Orlando. I think the first thing is that I, I started with the idea of the city, so I didn't necessarily know when it was going to take place, but um, I'm a big fan of, of city fiction. I'm a big fan of TV shows like uh, The Wire and Treme uh, that, that take a, a city and kind of make a character out of it. Um, some of my favorite books are The Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. I mean, that's on the I think on the copy in the back of the book. So mm -hmm. clearly that's an influence, but um, I, I really enjoy how, um, how an author can create a character out of a place. Uh, and I'd always wondered why Orlando didn't have that. Like the only time Orlando ever wound up on, on screen and uh, Jason, you could probably speak to this uh, is, is when we, we saw like a sitcom where the characters would all go to the magic kingdom and so that was always the, the characterization of Orlando. And the only time it showed up was the theme parks or, you know, even mm -hmm. when Ellen would, you know, film an episode or something in, in Orlando. And so why hadn't anyone ever explored Orlando in cinema or in literature? And so I, I kind of started with that premise. What would a book about Orlando look like? What is Orlando's true character? Um, and then 
only when I really started writing it, and it was sort of um, displaced, I think, when uh, when I first started writing it, did I decide that I needed to settle on a time because the character of a city is different uh, from decade to decade. The 90s Orlando was different than 80s Orlando was different than clearly 2009 or 2019. I mean, the city now, mm-hmm. um, if your listeners are, are, are here and they were here for two decades, like it, it, it's dramatically different than 2009. Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, the late 2000s mm-hmm. isn't that long ago, but it, and yet right. it feels like we're kind of peering back into the distant past. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and even I got here in 99. And in 99, um, it seemed like this was a city on the grow. But I even think about different intersections at that time that were barren or run down and, and what they look like now and like how different neighborhoods that hadn't been built yet. Like it felt like everything was happening in 99. And then again in 2009, it felt like everything was collapsing. And mm-hmm. I'm not really sure right now. I think I'll need a decade to figure out what 2019 is all about. Right. Um, Jason, I saw you nodding your head there sort of thinking about – Orlando depicted on film, either yeah. big screen or, or on TV. Um, and, and your screenplay looks at a very specific slice. I mean, Eatonville is a separate city, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a very kind of specific part of Orlando or adjacent to Orlando. Um, why pick that as the setting for your your uh, TV series? Well, Eatonville is just full of rich culture. Um, you know, so much has happened there. Um, we 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 kind of borrowed from the history of Eatonville and Paramore. Um, and we created our own fictitious town called Wellsville. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, back in, you know, 1920s, Dr. William Monroe Wells created, um, you know, a hotel for African-Americans that were coming through Orlando who weren't allowed to, you know, stay at white-only hotels. Um, so we kind of took from what Dr. Wells was doing and we took from the history of Eatonville kind of put them together, the Wells and the Ville, and created Wellsville. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we wanted to, just as Nathan was saying, we wanted to take that that town and make it a character in the program as well and track it from during, you know, back when Wellsville was created or even when Eatonville was created, track it through the, the great black migration, you know, from the 1920s to the 1970s. You know, look at how integration played a part, look how segregation played a part, mm-hmm. and then, you know, bring it up to date. And then if you look at Edenville or even Paramore, I guess now, um, I mean, to Nathan's point about Orlando being a city on the grow, these two communities are kind of being squeezed by other yes. forces, right? Like gentrification, yeah. um, you've got roads kind of cutting through them. Yep. Um, so in some ways, they're a little precarious, it seems. Yeah, you you look at Paramore and, you know, it's downtown Orlando was on the grow. But because downtown Orlando was on the grow, Paramore is, you know, people that have lived in Paramore their entire lives. You know, some of them are, are being displaced and they have nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And then you look at somewhere like Eatonville, which is stuck right in the middle of Maitland and Winter Park. And those two cities are growing you know, like crazy. And people are starting to look at Eatonville like, hey, I want that waterfront property that you're sitting on that five generations may have sat, you know, been sitting on in Eatonville. You know, mm-hmm. what can we do to get it? Jenny, I want to bring you into this conversation. I've got a book, uh, one of your books in front of me. It's uh, We Are Not From Here. But I want to talk also about um, another book you wrote called Because of the Sun. And this is about a girl who has a difficult relationship with her mother and she leaves Florida to live in New Mexico after her mother dies. But let's just talk a little bit about the setting, you know, of the start of the, that book, at least um, mm-hmm. in, in kind of suburban Florida. Um what does that setting mean to you? And I'm just kind of wondering, is it challenging sort of writing about the suburbs in Florida versus the city? 
Talk about that process. Yeah, not really, because I moved here when I was um, about 10 years old. And so I have this very split, um, kind of split childhood where I had a very New York uh, childhood when mm-hmm. from, you know, birth till 10. And then uh, my teen years were here in, in you know, suburbia in uh, the cul-de-sacs and all of that stuff. So right. um, I just really wrote about that um, and what... Uh, I, I didn't like Florida when I moved here. I hated it. It was so different from where I lived. There was um, none of the places that I was familiar with, the pizzerias, the delis, the bakeries, none of that existed. And, and you couldn't walk anywhere. Um, so I think I just kind of brought that angst and the way that I felt about Florida into my characters who are teenagers and who are very angsty and, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of wanting to break out of this place. Mm-hmm. If you think about the city as a character, does Orlando feel a bit like a teenager at times, kind of trying to figure itself out? <laughs> it absolutely does. Um, just kind of like not knowing what it is, being a lot of different things, um, and being misunderstood by a, by a lot of other people, which mm-hmm. I think is exactly what you know the teenage perspective is. And having been here for some time now, do you feel a sense of defensiveness? Because sometimes Orlando, Florida broadly can be the butt of jokes. I mean, if you think about culture and food and writing, oftentimes people are looking at Florida and saying, what's going on there? That's not like New York or right. LA or where have you. Um, but do you kind of feel now that you need to spread the word about these unique places that do exist in Florida and should be celebrated and explored? I do. And actually, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a, an essay for Borough Press that was um, titled, If You Move to Florida in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um and I likened Florida to my little sister that, like, is really annoying and, you know, I kind of can't stand. And I'm okay. It's okay for me to make fun of. But mm-hmm. if anybody else does, um, you know, Better we're going to have some words. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's very much how I feel about Florida. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's okay for me and Lauren and Nathan and Jason to, like, kind of make fun of it and, and all of its, you know, oddities. But um, anybody else, I feel like I do kind of have to correct them and say, well, you know, I don't really think you know what it is. Um, Lauren, the character in one of your books, This Tiny Perfect World, um, I guess she has a slightly different perspective, right? She kind of, she loves the place she lives. So at the start, at least, and it takes some kind of growing to see that there's a world out beyond her her small perfect town. Yeah, uh that that's exactly it. So, it takes place uh in Christmas Florida and Christmas is a place where if you say there's a Christmas Florida everyone thinks it's Santa and mm. and you know snow all the time and it, it's not. It's a it's a complicated city that has really beautiful parts and then it also has Confederate flags. So, I I likened that to her where she thought that everything was perfect in her life. She had a really great life, but there's there's more out there. Um and not just a stereotype of a girl. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it starts in in Christmas, and it uses landmarks around there. Um, they go to the largest fake gator, which is a place in Christmas, Florida, um, and to the Alafaya Branch Library where I work. Uh, so that was a fun throw in, and then all around um, downtown and Winter Park. So mm-hmm. it was kind of fun incorporating all of those things and showing not just the the stereotype of Florida. And another, just to, to bring back to the movie conversation, kind of like a stereotype of Christmas being always perfect, there's a stereotype of Florida always being perfect as well. And then there's movies like The Florida Project that came out that kind of showed a more gritty side of it as well. Mm-hmm. So I showed a little more of a gritty side. <laughs> Are we at that point, do you think, where we're, we're okay sort of 
seen these movies or reading these books which show the gritty side of Florida and we're not going to get defensive about it. <laughs> I'll still be defensive. <laughs> like Jenny said, like you can make fun of like SNL literally made fun of uh, Orlando this weekend. Mm. Um, and I will be defended. I will defend it. I will defend Orlando, but also make fun of it at the same time because I can because yeah. it's my city. <laughs> when you started writing uh, fiction, did you sort of think I'm definitely going to be right? Like my characters are going to live in Florida. They're going to be off Florida. Or did you think I need to look elsewhere? Uh, I've always written about Florida because I went to high school here. Like Jenny, I moved later. I moved here in uh, 96 when I was going into eighth grade. So for my first book, I was kind of like channel that teenage mindset. And to my teenage mindset was Altamont Springs, Florida. So mm-hmm. um, I, I said a lot around there. And I uh, I like the idea of using real locations because it kind of makes the book more real to me. And something um, we mentioned earlier was that – Setting a location that you know about makes it kind of makes a book feel specific in mm-hmm. a way and not just this overview of like Magic Kingdom. So right. I liked writing about that. So my first book takes place in Orlando. Second is Tallahassee where I went to college and third is back in Orlando. Nathan, kind of thinking about setting and, and some of your comments earlier about, you know, the city now feeling a lot different from even when it did in like 98 or 99 or 2000. I mean, there's some nice visual elements too because you have a a background in in graphic art as well and and editing comics and the like. And uh, one of the things that strikes me is some of the landmarks you're talking about are writing out like the Merit of Bread sign. I mean, that doesn't exist anymore. So people of a certain era will remember driving down I-4, rolling down the window and smelling the delicious smell of bacon bread. Yes. Some say that it's still there. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, I I mean, I think the sign still exists somewhere, right? Somebody saved it? I think so. That and the the concrete work of the the round building where Mm -hmm. the Dr. Phillips Center is now, I think that's – they're saved somewhere, but you know, the sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark type of warehouse. Sure, no one will ever see them. And one of the characters in your book is kind of like a—he's totally into say, like preserving Orlando. Yes. He's like every single yeah. little hip niche bar. He's got to make sure that people know about it. Right. Um, I mean, this seems like a, a character who is somebody very lovingly created. Um, yeah. Well, so I think that, um, you know, kind of building off of uh, what Lauren and Jenny had said about the types of characters that are in their book, I, I think that, you know, there's not just one type of Florida person and not one type of Orlando person. And I think the more that they've written, they've explored several different types of people who come to Florida or leave Florida. And so. Um, you know, the challenge in my 600-page book <laughs> would be to populate it with as many different types of characters as possible. And, and yeah, the, I have a blogger in the book who's, like, madly in love with Orlando and incredibly defensive of Orlando and um, wants to write, you know, the ultimate listicle about Orlando, all of the places to go. And so it, that was my opportunity to to almost be a kind of blog and, and, mm-hmm. and, and show the places that mean something to the area and then a couple of fake places, too. It was also my opportunity to um, forever immortalize Beefy King in literature, right. yes. which I think is important. You know, I think that's an important thing to do. Right. I mean, it, it came perilously close to perishing in a fire right. recently yeah. too, right? So I, I had an old uh, creative writing professor, um, and, and she she was really uh, into Southern literature. She went on to work for the, the Southern Review at LSU, and um, she was really upset, you know, around the time of Katrina – of course, so she had Southern ties, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but she had, she talked about the the literature of New Orleans being important in a situation like that to preserve a place, um, even when certain things get washed away. And 
I know it's not as serious, but when there was the fire at Beefy King, that was one thing that I thought about. Like when we lose something in real life, we that's why literature and cinema, that's why that's so important. Jason, your screenplay is, is kind of, the, the premise is pretty startling, right? I wonder if you just got to lay it out for our listeners, what exactly is going on with this family that you're depicting? Yeah, definitely. I, I wanted to ask Nathan real quick, though, with, with, with all the landmarks that you have, do you ever think you'll put the building from I-4 in one of your stories? <laughs> it's on the cover. <laughs> it's on the cover. It's, yeah. it's oh, yeah. it is on the cover. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't get more Orlando than that right will you, there. Will you put that into your pilot? Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, that is great. Yeah, that in Florida, man. You know. <laughs> um, so the premise for Waking Up White, it's, it's about a black family that wakes up white, and they have 30 days to decide if they want to go back to their cultural roots or stick with the skin that they're in. Um, going a little bit further, you know, once they wake up, the neighborhood that they fled, which was Wellsville, is um, is in the early stages of gentrification. So now whatever decision they make not only affects them, but it also affects the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Are you kind of using, and I've, I've sort of read through the, the synopsis and the like, but are you sort of using the like humor as a way to get the audience into some pretty challenging and difficult themes and concepts? Absolutely, because we talk about racism, we talk about classism, we talk about colorism, we talk about a lot of isms. And when I first started out with this, I w- it, w- it was actually a feature film, and it was very dark. It was about 75, 80 pages, and it was a dark you know, drama. And um, I-, I said, you know what? Maybe I should just really flip this into a TV series because you know, then we could talk about all of the issues on a weekly basis. So that's what I did. And since we had already done all the research, we- it was easier to kind of pepper in the comedy you know, mm-hmm. at the right times. Because we found that comedy, it just it's easier to digest the message with some comedy, right? Um, and sort of thinking, you know, picking up of of what uh, Nathan's doing in his fiction, do you sort of feel like you have a chance to preserve something that exists and also kind of make a new reality in, in your writing? Yeah, uh, and, and that's the goal to to create a a new reality here, and you know, um, just just show show the audience, you know, really what's happening maybe with black Orlando instead of just Orlando as a whole. And you could tell the story anywhere mm-hmm. in the United States, right? Yeah, but even uh, outside the country, yeah. But are there some things that kind of make it unique to to whether you're sort of this amalgam of Eatonville and Paramore or Orlando, Central Florida in general? Uh, yeah, just, you know, again, all the landmarks, you know, that we will see, um, Eatonville, um, because in the pilot, we show a lot of, we, we show the town hall of Eatonville. We just kind of covered it up. We we show just the ville in the Eatonville <laughs> sign. <laughs> so, you know, people will recognize those landmarks. And, and we also shot, uh, you know, around Maitland and Winter Park also because, you know, they're right on the other side of them. So, yeah, yeah we, 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 we kind of journeyed outside of Eatonville a bit. Mm-hmm. Jenny, when you think about your audience, um, who do you kind of envisage reading your books? Like, is, are you sort of writing for folks who live in Florida and kind of get those visual cues or, or your descriptions of certain parts of suburbia, or are you just writing for anyone of a certain age? Um, well, I write for young adults, so primarily my readers are teenagers. Um, and uh, really, teenage, the, the teenage perspective is so unique. It's so interesting, right? And um, just this feeling of being trapped somewhere and really wanting to go out and explore and see what else is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm writing, I'm really trying to kind of make sure that I stay true to that perspective, um, you know, and, and and then 
if you are a teenager here in Orlando and Florida, I think it's really cool to to see those landmarks and and those places that you've been or those um, kind of B-sides, if you will, of of Orlando and being like, hey, I know what this is and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of feeling included um, at a time when you feel very kind of like not included in in anything as a teenager. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about your audiences, Lauren? Uh, I mean, pretty much what Jenny said. I write for teenagers as well. Um, It doesn't uh, it's the same where if you are from this area, you kind of get a lot of the visual stuff, and that's fun. And if you don't, then you just kind of get a new piece of Florida, and that's mm-hmm. fun too. They could assume that I made it up, which I didn't. Um, I changed some <laughs> places' names, but mm-hmm. um, for the most part, uh, it's it's all real places, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, actually, two of mine and Je- one of my books and one of Jenny's books both deal with downtown Orlando, and I think. With both of our books, you can visit, like, most of the hot spots. Like, mm-hmm. Jenny yeah. has the Swans, and she has the various cemetery. places, the cemetery, various places on Orange. And then, in, and that's in her Death Dickinson and Demented Life of, Je- of Frenchie Garcia. And then in this tiny perfect world, um, they're downtown, and they go to all of the statues around Lake Eola, like the woman half underground. And mm-hmm. they do the um, the music on the library wall where you can put your hand, and it plays music. Um, they go to the pizza place on Orange, so you can kind of do a nice little tour of downtown Orlando with our books. Thinking about sort of fiction and and the setting and Florida, Central Florida is often a place where people come to sort of experience something magical or fantastical. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason, do you feel like that gives you a bit of freedom to sort of create a new Florida that people maybe haven't experienced before? Yeah, absolutely. Because when all of my family talks about coming down here, they think that I live right next to Disney World. So yeah, it, it, it gives me the freedom to go ahead and create something else um, because you know truth be told and I think we all you know realize this Orlando doesn't have a true identity um, mm-hmm. except for still yeah mm-hmm. except for um, Disney World like that's you know Disney World and Universal you know um, um, so yeah I, I enjoy being able to create something else mm-hmm. we have a flag mm-hmm. though yeah yeah we do have a flag. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a flag <laughs> but but is there anything that we can like really you know, hang our hat on and say, yes, this this is what we do. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe back in the 90s, you know, we had, what, Lou Pearlman, and he was creating all boy the, ba- the boy bands, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that that age is, is dead and gone at, at this point. So what are we known for now? Is that something that you see as a kind of perpetual challenge as a writer? Is it an opportunity? Is yeah, it- it's, it's, it's both. It's, it's, a, it's a problem and it's a, it's a good opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we can create, you know, something that we can become known for. You look at Atlanta. Atlanta's known for film and TV. Philly is known for brotherly love and great, you know, cheese steaks and pretzels. And, you know, what, what can Orlando be known for? The Swans? The swans, yeah, swans and gators, you know. I four, I four, the I four building, yeah, and the I four and I four, yeah, we love it, yeah. Nathan, do you feel like you kind of captured the city, or did you get to the end of the book and you're like, I, this is this is like an ongoing challenge. I'm going to have to come back and write a companion in like ten years or something. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I captured a moment, and I think that's the best a book can do. I think that um, one thing that I would I would love is for the book to be sort of like a like an early chapter itself a very long early chapter no and uh, it, okay. you know in a, in a conversation that keeps going and that's why i think you know y'all's work is also important in that conversation is that 
um, the identity of the city might be slightly different in each one of those books. And it's only sort of taken mm-hmm. together that, that we have a, you know, a real a more complete picture. And the mm-hmm. more writers, specifically local writers that take up that challenge, you know, I think that the clearer the picture becomes. Well, let me um, ask you all then what you're working on now and starting with you, Jason, what, what's next for you? Uh, just doing a lot of producing and, and teaching. Um, I'm teaching at UCF right now, teaching screenwriting to about 80, 80 students, so that's fun, mm-hmm. uh, reading screenplays every day. Um, also, I'm working on a feature film with a good buddy of mine named Tim Ritter, um, who also works at UCF, and it's called Echoes, and it's kind of a post-apocalyptic um, type film, um, just kind of starting the, the earth all over again, seeing mm. what would happen. Seems very off the moment. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> and and what about waking up white? Where might we see that at some point down the track? Yeah, it's it's making its rounds around um, on the film festival circuit. Um, we're also talking to a couple of different networks about you know possible TV series networks as as well as streaming platforms mm-hmm. about a possible TV series, and um, also looking to possibly you know turn it into a web series. Right. Um, Nathan Hollick, what does an author who's just, you know, published a 600-page novel do next? (laughs) i got a 1,200-page book. (laughs) No, I want to write something short. Right. (laughs) I I, I was really – I read uh, Stepford Wives this past uh, summer. I was really affected by that and by the brevity of the prose and the efficiency of it. It's less than 200 pages, and it's, you know, probably the best sort of horror novel I've ever read. Uh, so I want to I want to write a, a Stepford Wives. That's my that's my goal now. So in. horror of some sort. Yeah, yeah, but it's sort of suburban horror, right? Like, but my my thought is instead of the wives, the children. Yeah. Mm. I'll leave it cryptic. The Stepford kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Lauren, what are you working on? Um, I have an anthology coming out in 2021 called Battle of the Bands with uh, Candlewick. I'm co-editing it with uh, my friend Nathan – or Nathan? My friend Nathan. No, my friend Eric Smith. Um, and it's about a Battle of the Bands that takes place in one night. And we have 14 authors, including us, who wrote a different uh, story for each. And they interweave. So all it's each band that performs as well as side figures. Jenny has a story in it as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're really excited about it. Did you go to a lot of those – I did. I played drums in high school. Oh. I competed in one full Battle of the Bands, and we were terrible, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, Jenny, what are you working on? I am gearing up for my book that comes out in May. It's called We Are Not From Here, and it's about um, three migrant teens from Guatemala who are trying to get to Mexico so that they can then um, get on La Bestia, which is the train that a series of trains that um, go through Mexico to the U.S. border. And so they're fleeing danger in their home country and trying to um, seek refuge here. Well, Jenny Torres-Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Also joined by Lauren Gibaldi. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Nathan Hollock. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. And Jason Gregory. Thank you as well. Thank you. And that interview first aired in January 2020. Up next, a conversation with the creator of a new sculpture of Mr. Rogers unveiled at Rollins College in October. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. In October, a new sculpture of Fred Rogers was unveiled at his alma mater, Rollins College. The sculpture, which stands about 7 feet tall and weighs about 3,000 pounds, depicts him talking to a group of children on his TV show, Mr Rogers' Neighbourhood. It took British sculptor Paul Day two years to complete. 
I spoke with Day in August as the sculpture was being shipped across to the United States. You know, there are two sculptures in the States that I'm aware of that have been commissioned of Fred, one in Pittsburgh, one in Latrobe, shown as uh, as just a seated figure in his you know classic cardigan and sneakers. I felt that what was missing in those statues was something that told the story of who he was. Bearing in mind, I've never, I'd never heard of the, the man. I felt that the sculpture would be something that's going to outlive the memory of him among people who are alive today, quite possibly. Um, and therefore it should in some way um, explain itself, um, show him doing what he did best and why he became so loved um, and and famous. It also occurred to me that Fred, being an extremely uh, modest and humble person, always tried to deflect the attention away from himself towards the children and towards the work he did. He, he would never have um, been comfortable in any way with sort of being treated uh, somehow as a VIP or celebrity. And having looked at all the documentary footage of him, it's clear that whenever he was in the company of children, he lost almost all interest in the grown-ups around him and went straight to them and got on their level and communicated with them and communed with them in a way which is exceptional. So I persuaded or I encouraged the college to consider the idea of not a statue of Mr. Rogers, but a scene showing Mr. Rogers doing his thing. So he's surrounded by... Like he's, he's got a kind of a group of children around him. He's sort of holding court with them or, or speaking to them on, on their level, as you say. Yes. He's, he's, he's sort of squatting down, sitting on a little child's stool. There are seven children around him in various positions and various, various moods. And he's using Daniel, the puppet, the, tri the striped tiger, to tell a story to them and to engage with them. And uh, one, of the, one of the most moving scenes in that documentary you mentioned earlier and it's a documentary that everyone has to see, I think, it's so beautiful, um, was when a little boy uh, was standing in front of Mr. Rogers with Daniel on the end of his arm, and the little boy was describing how recently his pet dog had died. And Fred, through Daniel, was, was sort of sharing the loss of this pet um, with the little boy and having the most extraordinary and intimate and... Um, touching conversation and I just um, I just felt that that uh, that picture really summed up the uniqueness and the brilliance of of Fred Rogers and the documentary of course uh, came out in 2018 and that's uh, won't you be my neighbor this sounds like a, a complicated sculpture a complicated scene Paul so is it among the more challenging pieces that you've worked on from a technical standpoint I would say probably yes, in that um, a lot, I've done a lot of big work in the past, and um, uh, I, have, I have four fairly large monuments in London, for example, with lots of figures, hundreds of figures. Um, but in this case, the figures are what we would call in the round. Uh, they're full sculptures. I tend to work a lot in relief. Um, that means sculpting pictures against a backdrop, where you only really have to deal with the front surface. In this case, it's been a while since I've done a group of life-size. Well, in fact, these are in fact, these are more like twice life-size. These figures, uh, so they're they're really quite big. Um, but it's been it's been a long time since I've actually 
tackled figures in the in that complexity of composition and also it's really the first time that i've sculpted children on that scale in the round as the primary subject and i'm sure you're aware but you know children in art come with 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 um, a health warning so many so many renderings of children in art turn towards um sent over sentimentality or towards kitsch or the children look like shrunken teenagers but also i've always found when looking at children that their faces can change um so remarkably from looking like a child to looking like an old person you know children's expressions are unguarded um they uh they're not necessarily aware of uh, the, the politics of their relationships they are frank open pages as it were um and therefore when i see children in art portrayed as a sort of um a, a sweet sentimental beings that's the that's a superficial adult portrayal of childhood in my opinion and one of the great things about fred was that when he spoke to a child he spoke to that child as as a human being not as a child but as somebody with whom he could have a deep and meaningful conversation albeit on their level but but it wasn't it wasn't in any way an approach that talked down to children it strikes me too that i mean you're evoking a scene from a television show so you're you're kind of freezing a moment in time but you're then trying to turn that around and make it real so you're you're trying to do two things at once this kind of an alchemy to it right you're trying to evoke a sense of movement and motion and mimic an art form that is by its very nature you know it's kind of fleeting television it's something you kind of experience in the moment so you're you're trying to pull off the impossible in some ways well i think sculpture in a sense is always trying to figurative sculpture is always trying to strive to that that you're absolutely right um if the fixed image doesn't imp- have implied movement latent life to it physical life you know moving life um then then that object frozen in time can look soulless and lifeless um now obviously you know a sculpture is something that you dis- one discovers um in physical space therefore you have to move around it so there's always a sort of an element of time passing when you look at a sculpture it is in a sense not just a fixed image but there is also um the element of time as you turn around it or it turns around you so they're not so dissimilar in some respects but obviously this image will stay the same for forever while it's while it's in existence and and composition i.e. finding a balance of form and line positioning the figures in such a way that the eye is naturally drawn across it in sort of curves and zigzags helps to i think uh imbibe it with a sense of movement and life but i was also very very keen that for example to avoid what what one could imagine being um a 19th century image of children around the feet of jesus for example or or cherubs uh you know this this is not a um a religious icon these this is a man who loves these children and the children love him but they are interacting they're having a a conversation between equals in a way 
it's interesting you bring up the idea of not wanting it to evoke religious imagery or something because that's something that his widow, the late Joanne Rogers, brought up as well. She wanted to make it clear that this was not a saint, this was a, a, a real human being. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're striving for a little bit there as well. Well, I think, I think, um, I mean, Joanne and I actually spoke about this. Um, I didn't get out, I didn't, I didn't manage to get from her exactly what made Fred anything other than a saint. In the, in, in my Protestant minded understanding of sainthood, Fred is most definitely a saint, but as is Joanne, as are those who profess that faith, you know, so the sort of the idea of sainthood doesn't depend, it's, it's not the Catholic um, um, idea that somebody has to have performed miracles and so on. Um, but in fact, the, the fact is, I think our concept of what a miracle is sometimes goes astray because in a sense, Fred's life and work was pretty miraculous. Um, the, the number of lives he touched and changed for the better. There, there is a side to his work, his life's work, which is extraordinary and, and worthy of, of, of praise, you know, and, uh, and of, of a, a form of adoration. Um, but the fact is, as you say, um, and I agree entirely with, with Joanne, you know, Flesh and blood, we're all fa failed, you know, we're all failed human beings, as it were. And um, and it's it's not about, you know, it's not about the achievement. It's about how we commune with others, how we befriend others, how we are good neighbours. I mean, Fred's um, values of neighbourliness, I think, would be um, beneficial um, to it to, to infuse into the current public dialogue and into the world of social media. And in fact, I think if Fred were alive, he'd be now and performing, you know, and, 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 and writing his programs and so on. He might well be teaching us all how to be, how to be neighborly and good neighbors on social media, for example, you know, what, what shift in our behavior needs to happen so that we no longer feel we can take liberties in, in anonymity to to criticize and 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 um and insult people um uh, over the internet i think there is an art to be learned of neighborliness um in our current sort of you know modes of communication and that was paul day talking about a sculpture of fred rogers which was unveiled at rollins college in october that interview first aired in august this year Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived interviews on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.